The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as Pastor Casey had mentioned uh, earlier in the service, uh, when he uh, opened the service up for us, um, this past week, uh, he and his wife Nikki had the opportunity to, to get some much-needed relaxation and some rest and some time together. Um, and we're thankful for that. Pastor Casey, um, we're thankful for, for Pastor Casey and, and, all, and all that he does week in and week out, preparing sermons, uh, caring for us individually as he, he meets with us. He spends a lot of time uh, in various ways um, pouring out his heart to really uh, shepherd us well. And we're thankful that he can take that time to, to rest and, and get some vacation. Um, it's, it's important for, um, for our, our shepherd to, to be nourished himself and refreshed. Uh, this week he has asked me to uh, preach in place for him this morning. And uh, it is my joy uh, to do so this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you, the great I am. Lord, we, we look to your word 
where you tell us that you have words of eternal life, Lord. God, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, you would show us who you are. And God, in showing us who you are, we pray that you would show us clearly who we are. And we pray that you would direct our attention, direct our hearts, that we would trade our identities for an identity in Christ. That we would give up ourselves to follow your word, to find our treasure in Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Church, I have a divided home. And when I say that, you're probably anticipating me to start using some sort of sports illustration that my house is somehow divided over one sports team and their rival. But no, this division goes deeper. It goes to the core of identity. My home has competing identities. And it has come to a head just a few weeks ago. My wife is from the South. And as all of you are reminded every week by Pastor Casey, I am from the North. (laughs) Just a few weeks ago, I was upstairs in Ezra's bedroom, our son's bedroom, and he's, he's about 19 months old right now. And he's, he's starting to learn new words, starting to put words together. And it's a really exciting time. And so we're, we're trying to take this time to, to teach him new things, trying to teach him words. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to raise him right. I'm trying to, to raise him in the, in the way he should go. And I saw an opportunity before me. So I'm up there, just me and Ezra, and I look at him and I said, Hey, Ezra, can you say, you guys? And he did it. <laughs> it was great. It was such a glorious moment. He looks up at me. He goes, guys, guys. And he even squashed the vowel. It was so good. But then terror struck the scene. I hear my wife shouting from the living room, no, stop, stop it. Don't say that. Say y'all, say y'all. There is a division in my home, and it is a division over identities. And obviously, I joke around. Rachel and I don't really care whether or not Ezra says y'all or if he says you guys. Maybe just a little bit. But I say this to bring up the point that identities matter. Identities go down to the core of who we are. And this morning, we're going to look at that from this passage in John chapter 8. We're going to look at the, 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 the importance of identity, the role it plays, and we're going to look at competing identities. The first point I want us to draw our attention to is an unrecognized identity. In this passage, the Jews assess Jesus' identity and who he is, and they bring it to two accusations. We're going to reread through verses 48 through 59, but as we do, I want you to note these accusations. Spot them out, and as we continue to read through, see the reasoning for them and how that reasoning progresses. Note where it comes from. Starting in verse 48, the Jews answered him, 
are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews answered him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? This first accusation that the Jews accuse of Christ is that he is a Samaritan. What is the significance of that? What are they trying to say? In order to get to that, we need to understand the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans lived a little bit north of the Jews, and there was a lot of hostility and conflict between the two. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans, and their conflict was wrapped up in the idea of who had the rightful claim to be called the children of Abraham. Who were truly God's people? And the Jews had a particular argument. See, Samaritans had intermarried. Many of them had intermarried with Gentiles. And the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and said, you have no rightful claim to be called children of Abraham because you have abandoned your your heritage to Abraham. You're a half-breed. And that's what the Jews are saying to Christ. They're saying that Christ is not truly a Jew himself. He is not truly one of God's people. And all of this comes because of what Jesus says in the context. In John 8, Jesus tells the Jews that they have abandoned their spiritual identity of their Jewish heritage. We see this in John 8, 39 through 44. They said, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your word is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is telling the Jews, you have abandoned your spiritual heritage. You have abandoned your spiritual identity. And because Jesus questions the identity of the Jews' heritage, they look to him and they choose an accusation that seeks to undermine his credibility. They say, who are you to tell us that we are not 
children of Abraham. You must be a Samaritan to question us. They also call Jesus demon-possessed. Here the Jews are seeking to discredit the words of Christ by contrasting him to the role of a prophet. What is the role of a prophet? A prophet is someone sent by God to a certain people to deliver a certain word. And they say to Jesus, you don't speak the words of God. You speak the words of a demon. To bring this all full circle, what is going on here? The Jews are rejecting the true identity of Christ because the true identity of Christ does not allow them to to view themselves the way they think they are. So they let their view of themselves shape who they think God is. They let their view of themselves shape their own theology. This is so backwards, church. But it is a pattern that often we follow as well. We often follow the same pattern of trying to recreate God in our own image. And it's not always as explicit as, as the Jews here. We, we don't always come to, the, to, to the, the straight conclusion of saying, oh, Jesus isn't truly God. But sometimes we base our view of God out of who we want to be. We like to be in control, don't we? We like having control. We like our own sovereignty. And out of that desire for us to be in control, we start changing. We start either denying or even altering and limiting what it means for Jesus to truly be sovereign, for him to truly have control. And we change it so that we can, we can keep part of that for ourselves, so that we can still claim that we have control over our own life. Sometimes we base our view of God out of how we want our lives to play out. When hardship strikes our life, it can be really easy for us to start asking the questions, is God really in control? Is God really good? Is he really gracious? Does he really care for his children? We may not say that, but we may feel that. And those feelings we let to start change the way we actually think about God. Sometimes we base the way we view our view of God on our own sinful desires. Changing who God is to justify our own sin. I'm sure you're familiar with hearing the phrase, God wants me to be happy, right? I'm sure we've all heard that before at one point or another. But who determines what will make you actually happy? Who determines where true joy is found? We are in that moment trying to determine what will make us truly happy, what will make us truly joyful. And it's true that God does want us to be happy, that he does want us to find joy, but he wants us to find joy in him, in what he desires for us. Because he knows. He's the one who created us. He knows how we're designed. He knows what will fulfill us. But we don't want to play by those rules. We want to find what is happy according to our means, what we desire to make us happy. 
So we seek to change it by changing what God says. We, we say, God wants me to be happy, right? And we leave out the context of that. And we say, this will make me happy. And since God wants me to be happy, it justifies my desire. Or take anger. I think this is probably even a little bit more closer to heart for a lot of us. We try to justify our anger all the time. We feel justified in our anger, right? We feel that we have a good reason to be angry. But that's changing the standard of righteousness. Notice the progression here. When we are angry and we feel that we have a just reason for anger, we end up saying things like, I'm sure you've heard, well, Jesus flipped over the money tables, right? Jesus went into the temple. He drove out the Pharisees with a whip, right? We use the, the righteous anger of Christ, and we, we try to, to slap it on our own unrighteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and we can have righteous anger, but I think oftentimes our anger is not truly righteous. But rather than confessing that, we change the standard of righteousness. We change who God is. And we say, I'm justified in this. Because Jesus was angry too, right? This is so backwards, church. Maybe sometimes we don't try to change who God is. Maybe instead, we just disregard who he is. We look at God's identity and we say, yeah, but God's identity really doesn't have any bearings on who I am. We create this dichotomy of identity. But practically speaking, what we're doing when we do that, that view simply identifies Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. We say, he can save me, but he, he has no right to change me. That doesn't work. That's not how it works, church. And we do this in so many ways. All of these are examples of ways we try to change who God is based on who we are. Instead, we should be looking to God, looking to Christ, our creator, and let him inform us of who we are. This is exactly what the Jews were refusing to do. And we do that over and over and over again ourselves. But like the Jews... This fundamentally is due to a misplaced identity, which is our second point. The Jews sought a physical identity that was stripped of any spiritual identity. They placed their identity in an ethnic heritage completely disregarded the significance behind that heritage. What was that significance? It was the promises of God the promises that all found their culmination in Christ. Scripture says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And when the Jews strip their, their, their heritage of their spiritual identity, they strip it of God's promises. They strip it of God's word. And now Jesus stands before them the culmination of it all, their heritage and their promises of their heritage. And what happens? They don't recognize him. 
they reject him. They call him a fraud, and they call him demon-possessed. What causes such blindness? It's a misplaced identity. They are not rooting their identity in God. They're rooting their identity in what is physical, what is here, what is before them, and they are ignoring the God who has called them as he stands right before them. You know, oftentimes we misplace our own identities in good gifts from God. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing here. The Jewish heritage was a beautiful thing. They became a nation of many people out of God's promise. This was, God had brought them out of Egypt as we had studied last year as we went through, through Exodus, and God had called them to be his own people, and they became a great nation. It was a gift from God. This is something that even the, the Apostle Paul emphasizes in the book of Romans as he mourns their rejection of Christ. He says, I wish that they would put their faith in Christ because they are the ones who have the oracles from God. They, have, they are the ones who have the first revelation from God, the first promises from God. Their heritage was beautiful, but it was not a beautiful identity. Their physical heritage was a misplaced identity, and it would mislead them. We, mis- we misplace our own identities in a lot of ways. On a personal level, one that's, I think, very applicable to all of us is a social appearance. I remember hearing um, uh, author and podcast producer that you probably are, are, are well, well familiar with now by this, by this point, uh, Mike Cosper. Uh, he was, I don't know if it was in a, a book or a podcast, but he was talking about this story uh, when he went into a coffee shop in Louisville and he sat down and before him wa- in walks this seminary student. And he's sitting in this coffee shop and the seminary student walks in, and he's holding this, this big, fat theology textbook. He goes up to the counter, orders his, his, his latte, goes, sits down, finds a table, sits down, opens up his theology book, lays it on the table, grabs his coffee, puts it down, takes off the lid so you can see the artwork in the, in the latte. He sits there and pulls out his phone, and he snaps a picture of it, spends the next 30 minutes adding his proper filter, adding his proper text and his caption. After those 30 minutes, picks up his book, heads out the door. Mike Cosper then says that he looks up online, types in a few search words, and he finds the guy's very social media post on Instagram or Facebook. And he goes, the guy never read a word from that book. But he sure looks pretty good on social media, doesn't he? We have this opportunity through social media to tailor the way that we appear to others, to fine craft how we look and fine craft the things we say so that we grab other people's attention. So oftentimes, we find our identity in that. We, make, we manufacture an identity out of how people perceive us. I remember back when Rachel and I were, were dating, it was like my first, uh, first year that I was uh, here at the church, and um, we, uh, 
we were having vacation Bible school here, and we were like prepping for it, and I was working on our, our uh, yearly lawn ornament, I think it was, and I was like painting a bunch of stuff, and I was getting all dirty with, with paint and covered in, in paint, and um, Rachel and I had plans that evening to go out to her parents for dinner, and uh, to, to be with her family, and I think this was like earlier on too, and it was kind of like that first time of like officially going over to their parents as a couple and everything. And, um, you know, I, I come back home from, from working on, you know, whatever we were working on here. And I'm covered in paint and covered in sweat. I go take my shower, but I've still got paint all over me. And I get in the car and I say, oh, man, I look filthy. And we're about to go over to your parents for dinner. I said, oh, you know what? I made a joke out of it. I said, you know what? It's okay. I'll just tell them, hey, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm covered in paint and everything. And I look so dirty, but I just, you know... I was busy serving the local church. I didn't actually do that, but we joke about it a lot. Um, as just just using, trying to throw that in right every now and then, just oh, just you know, just serving the local church. And I, I joke about that, but we do that a lot, don't we? We flaunt what we want, what makes us good, what makes us look good before others. It doesn't have to be on social media. It just social just social media just makes it really easy these days. But we tailor the way we look, we tailor the things we say as to manufacture this image of us for other people to see and for us to find our identity in. We can misplace our identity in a lot of things. It doesn't just have to be that social, you know, outward appearance. Just, just to name a, a, name a few here. We can root our identity in college, career, relationships, dating, marriage, friendships. We can root our identity in parenting, the way our children behave, methods of parenting, whether we homeschool, put our kids in private school, put them in public school. We put ourselves in these camps that we seek to identify by. And then we go and defend those camps and, and make it look as good as possible. We can find our identity on a national level in politics, seeking first the kingdom of our nation rather than the kingdom of our God. We can even find identity on a church level. And I, I, we got to be careful here because to an extent, we really should be finding our identity in the church. We should be doing that. Like The church is the body of Christ, and if it's the body of Christ, that should inform who we are. That should shape who we are. We should be finding our identity in that. But when ministries or particular cultures in the church become more about us or they lose their focus of Christ, they can turn into a misplaced identity. I think a good illustration that's easy for me to pick on here would be worship. When we become, this happens when we become more passionate about worship than we are about worshiping Christ. We can get so wrapped up in, in the ministry its, itself and completely lose sight of why we do that ministry because we find, our, we find our identity in how we do that ministry. And then we built a pride about how, how our church does this, how our church does it the right way. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? They had a religious identity 
but wasn't rooted in Christ. They knew the Scriptures. They, they were experts in their Bible studies. Man, what a ministry. The scribes, man, they, they had a ministry of constantly making copies of God's Word. And they found their identity in it. But not in Christ. We need to be careful as a church that that does not happen to us. Root our identity in Christ and let that shape everything we do. What is the danger of a misplaced identity? Jesus gives us a warning in verse 50, and he continues it through 54 and 55. Would you look at that with me? Jesus says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Drop down to 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus is telling us that the holy judge of heaven and earth has a particular priority. The holy judge of heaven and earth prioritizes the glorification and honor of Christ. This is the rubric, this is the standard by which he carries out his judgment. Jesus is cautioning his hearers, look, I don't seek my own glory, but you should seek my glory because that is what the judge prioritizes. But Jesus is not saying this out of some harsh legality. No, this is a rescue. This is a call to freedom. This is a call to life. How do we honor Christ? Jesus tells us in verse 51, when he says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We honor Christ by keeping his words as Christ kept the words of God the Father. And when by Christ honoring God the Father, by, by honoring his words and keeping his words, that's not separate from who Christ is. Those are the words of Christ. Because all Scripture points to Jesus. So when Jesus says, when the Scriptures say that Jesus honored the words of God, he's saying he honors the words about himself. He fulfills those words. He's obedient to those words, to what our Savior was called to do. Jesus has come with words of eternal life. We keep his word through repentance of our false identities and faith in his identity as the promised Savior to come. Which leads us to our third point, a found identity. This is modeled in Abraham in verses 56 and 57. We read, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? You know, the Jews are right in their response. Abraham had been dead for generations. 
And Jesus could, and the Jews, and Abraham could not have seen Jesus' day. That was physically impossible. But that is exactly Jesus' point. Jesus is telling them, it is not about your physical identity in your physical heritage. It's about Abraham's spiritual faith in me. Stop rooting your identity in yourself. Stop rooting your identity in this world. Stop rooting your identity in what is physical. Find your identity in me like Abraham did. We see this ultimately really played out in Hebrews and explained really there. In Hebrews 11, uh, starting in verse 8, going through 13. The scripture says in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, was, that, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, having not received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham found his identity not in himself, not in the fact that he was the father of many people to come. Abraham found his identity in his covenant God. He found his identity in the covenant promises of God. And he kept God's word. He held on to them. He had faith in God's promises. When Abraham kept God's word and God's promises, he was keeping the words of Christ, as Jesus says in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will be rescued from death. Which I want us to see here, not, not only did Abraham have a found identity, but his found identity led to joy. Look at verse 56. Jesus tells the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it by faith and was glad. Church, our society longs for a fulfilling identity. Each one of us, our society is built upon this. We all have ambitions to make an identity for ourselves, a name for ourselves, and this is all throughout history. Ever since the garden, when Adam and Eve wanted to be God, the Tower of Babel, when man built a tower and said, let us make a name for ourselves. And it continues today. 
the easy one to, to, to point out nowadays is, is this idea of sexual identity, right? People are trying to figure out how they want to identify themselves. So they're looking to themselves. It's so much wrapped up in our, in our society and in who we are that society has even come up with the concepts of identity disorders. I think a lot of this is illustrated really well uh, in the words of a, a song by John Mayer. It's a song called Something's Missing. And John Mayer, if you don't know much about him, um, he's a really great musician. Um, but he's a really accomplished musician. He's really, his, his songs have, have, you've probably heard a lot of them on the, on the radio or in stores as you're, as you're walking around. And he's, he has, he even says in one of his uh, songs, uh, like, like on a, in a prequel before, he said, he talks about how he's made a lot of things happen for himself. But in this song, he talks about all these things he has, and he keeps coming back to the fact that something is just missing, and he doesn't know what it is. He has a bridge that literally, in, in the song, is literally a checklist. He, he literally checks them off as, as he sings it. He goes on, he says, friends, check. Money, check. Sex, check. Guitar and a microphone, that's, you know, his fame and success, check. His message is waiting for me when I get home. It's popularity. It's the demand of people wanting, wanting, wanting his attention. Check. You could add, add on to it more and more. Got it all. Yet his chorus of the song says, something's missing, and I, can't, and I don't know how to fix it. Something is missing. The song doesn't end happy. The song ends right there. He says over and over again, I can't figure it out. Why? Because he's misplacing his identity. Fulfillment is only found in one identity, and that identity is in Christ. Which brings us to our last point here. The revealed identity. Verses 57 through 59. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus calls himself, I am. And this is a direct claim to be God, as many of us, I'm sure, know. But this name that he chooses is very particular. God goes by a lot of different names in the Bible. But Jesus chooses this one out of them for a reason. Jesus, when he calls himself I am, is saying, I am not only God, I am the all-self-sufficient God. This name is rooted in the context of Exodus 3, which we got to study last year. And in this, in this scene, Moses is walking through, uh, through the wilderness, uh, you know, um, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And in this scene, God calls forth to him from a burning bush. 
And it captures Moses' attention because he notices that the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. The bush stands completely fine. Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian, draws our attention to the self-sufficiency of God and how it is being reflected in this point. He says these words, The fire that was in the bush, present in the bush, but preserving the bush. It was a symbol of God's redemptive power. But notice especially the fire that was in the bush, but was not dependent on the bush for its energy to burn. A fire that was independent of that which all fire depends. A fire that was in the bush without burning up the bush. A most pure fire. A fire that was nothing but fire. A fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but had its energy source in itself. This is a self-sufficient God that is calling Moses forth. And then Moses, when he's commissioned to go back to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, Moses says to him, well, when I go to your people and I tell them that you've sent me, and they say, who is this God? He says, what should I call you? What name should I give, give to them for you? And Jesus gives, and, and, and God gives Moses his name. He says, I am who I am. You tell them I am has sent you. And he tells them, this is the name I shall be known as throughout all generations. Jesus is telling his hearers, I am self-sufficient. What is self-sufficiency? For God, it means that he has an identity that is not dependent on anyone else but himself. Jesus is lacking nothing. He lacks no glory, no pleasure, no joy, no fulfillment, no satisfaction. He is fully content in himself. And this is not just merely a contentment that we would, as we would understand it, as if to just have enough, as if you've just been filled up enough on a meal. No, Jesus is abundantly satisfied in the fullness of who he is, in the fullness of himself. This has been his nature from eternity to eternity, without beginning and without end. This is what it means for him to say that he is I am. He looks to the Jews who are craving identity, who are craving personal glory, personal pride, and he says, I don't need that from you. I don't need your glorification. I don't seek my own glorification. That comes from my Father. Where does this apply to us? In Colossians chapter 2, and this is such a sweet truth for us, church. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and through the first half of verse 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, that the, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he tells us, and you have been filled in him. Jesus reveals his identity so that we can find our identity in him. 
And the more we keep his word, the more we see the richness of who he is, we are drawn to a rich, satisfying identity for ourselves as we place our identity in him. He's saying, you want an identity? Look to me. Be filled in me. And if we're going to be looking at the revealed identity of Christ, we also have to realize one other thing from this passage. We have to see the revealed humility of Jesus' identity. This passage, whether you realize it or not, screams the humility of Christ. Jesus says over and over again that he does not seek his own glory. The title of this sermon, as you see on the screen, is Two Dangerous Words. And I think it's easy for us to, to look at that and go, two dangerous words. Yeah, Jesus is telling us he's God. Jesus is dropping the mic. He's putting us in our place. He says, it's easy for us to think these are dangerous words for mankind who refuse him. You know, there's an argument to be made there that without faith in Christ, these can be seen, these, these should be seen as, as dangerous words for sinful man. But that's not the point here. These are ultimately dangerous words for Christ. He's telling the truth that he is God. They're not false words. But he is saying this to sinful men who reject God, who hate God, who in the context Jesus actually says, seek to kill him. And we see it fleshed out that way. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when he says that he's God when he calls himself, I am, he knew that the Jews would know what that meant. He knew that they would start picking up stones and get ready to stone him to death. These are dangerous words for Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that this is not the only place that the Jews would seek to kill, kill Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus would also evade um, the Jews killing him. And the scriptures actually tell us why he evaded it, why they did not succeed. And it says, because his time had not yet come. Jesus was not just escaping death. He wasn't escaping death. In fact, Jesus was preparing himself for a very specific death. The Jews would crucify him for the same reason as they tried to stone him, because he made himself out to God, because he was God. He was preparing himself for a death that was humiliating, a death that was lonely, a death that was ultimately a sacrificial death. I want us to close by seeing all of this really played out in what you could see as a commentary on this passage written by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. These are, this is a, a, a familiar passage to us, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus does not glorify himself. He humbles himself. Jesus gives up the rights of his true identity. And instead, he takes the guilt, the shame, the brokenness, the condemnation of our identity, and he dies the death of a condemned sinner. He takes up our identity, takes it to a cross, and he crucifies it for us. Jesus does not glorify himself. He humbles himself to the point of death on a cross, but the Father glorifies him. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And in Jesus' glory, in his glorification, as he's risen to glorious life, he looks to us. He says, die to yourself. Find your identity in my glory. Find your identity in me. The fullness of I am is to be your identity, your joy, your, your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your contentment. It's rooted in me. I share it with you. Keep my words. Find your identity in me. Let's pray together.